Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture. We invite you to visit hillcountryinstitute.org to hear past programs and to listen to the audio and video from past conferences on faith and science, the spiritual formation of C.S. Lewis, and other cultural issues with Oz Guinness, Andy Crouch, Eugene Peterson, Alistair McGrath, and many other Christian leaders, authors, and pastors. We also invite you to support this ministry so we can continue to pay the radio stations which carry our program. If you are just now joining us, our special guest is Michael Ramsden, International Director of RZIM Ministries. Michael is an accomplished Christian apologist and evangelist who speaks and teaches around the world, including speaking at the White House in the U.S., to NATO leaders, and to members of the European Parliament. Michael, thank you once again for being with us for a special edition of Hill Country Institute Live. My pleasure. Well, it's great to great to talk. I appreciate the the work that you've done and that RZIM continues to do, not only in in presenting the gospel, but in preparing other people uh, to share the gospel with people that they come in contact with. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit again about RZIM and 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 how you work internationally. Well, thank you for the question. I, I actually have the great privilege of working with someone who I admired from a distance. Uh, very deeply and had a very profound impact on my life. And that's obviously Dr. Ravi Zacharias, who I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. And it was having been raised in the Middle East, I became a Christian. I had no church background at all. Someone gave me 45 of his tapes and I listened to them all. And my first thought was, wow, these Christians think really deeply. I better study hard and think these things through. I had no idea that it may be slightly unusual what he was doing. I assumed it was normal because I had nothing to compare it to. And you very eloquently already summed up our what we want to do. We want to reach people with the gospel and we want to train and equip people to be able to do that through the questions of our culture. I'm not trying to bypass the difficult and awkward, awkward questions of our culture, but actually how through those questions that people actually have and feel how can we make that connection there? Um, and as a matter of fact, what, what one of the things um, your, your listeners may be interested in is we have various training um, uh, programs and so on, but a very big thing which is about to launch with us next year is going to be called the Zacharias Institute, based out of the States from our international headquarters in Atlanta. Um, and um, we'll be uh, running sort of short, week-long programs, maybe long weekends, some a couple of weeks, trying to deal with and help Christians think through those difficult questions of God and science, you know, faith and work, um, this question of what does it mean to be human? Are we actually human beings? Are we just animals? Um, trying to help equip youth pastors, you know, and student workers and so on. Uh, so increasingly now, as well as just doing the physical delivery, we're, we're involved in, in online delivery. And we also have an, an academy now online too, which has... You know, some of the very best lectures which are now in a curriculum from Dr. Zacharias and also Professor John Lennox and Dr. Vince Vitale and myself and my colleague Amy or Ewing and actually our staff right across the globe that people can actually do at their own speed and be part of an online community. So we're very much trying to both through physical mentoring, and that's a much more expensive form of training, but also through online delivery, say, look, let's try and help you think these things through. Uh, that you can then use when you're talking to your friends, when you're in the workplace, uh, when you're talking to your family. Uh, how can we actually help this? Help you understand and think this through clearly, so you can be clear yourself in your own communication. Uh, and the greatest joy has been to see the sheer number of people around the world who've come to Christ, both through either hearing the team speak directly or talking to someone who's been trained and equipped in this. And then we get the letters saying. Thank you. I just, I've just done the online academy. It's been wonderful. I've 
been talking with my father, you know, as a result of doing this, and I've just prayed with them to come to Christ, something like that. That's, a, that's something which is very thrilling for us, because our goal very much is to say, to help the church regain her public voice and put it back out there into the public square. Well, two, two, two things. Um, when you became a Christian, you knew right away that you didn't have to unload or unpack your mind, leave your mind behind uh, to yeah. accept the faith. And and too often, I think, a uh, non-Christian, particularly in an intellectual or academic environment, uh, sees Christianity that way. Mm. And it's it's uh, it's sad. And then the the second second question is where where would uh, where would someone go for those online resources? Yeah, if anyone goes to um, rzim.org.org, um, you can find both the online academy which you can sign up for, and you'll also see on the website archived. All kinds of free um, talks, materials, plus other things that you can order if you want to, um, you know, to actually take you through that that process. The online academy, in particular, has been um, very uh, 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 successful because it actually takes people through a structured curriculum. And we have we have a, a centre here in Oxford where we train people for a year, um, and it's a very intensive program. Uh, but uh, the people who moderate the online discussion forums where people can go backwards and forwards with their questions and talk about the lectures they've just heard are actually graduates from, from the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. So they can also be part of this online community where they can discuss what's being said, uh, write it up, re-put it back in their own words, and so on. And so it's a real... Um, uh, yeah, it has that interactive side too, but all of it... I say, if anyone goes to www.rzim.org... Uh, you'll see all of that listed there. And the good news is most of it is free or or very inexpensive. As a matter of fact, we even have, we might be able to offer your readers a 20% discount if they want to sign up for the Academy uh, in the next couple of days. Um, uh, but uh, and let me see if, if later on I can find a discount code to give you that you can put out uh, and make it available to your listeners. Well, um, Michael, as a, as a teacher of apologetics and evangelism, you're, um, I'm sure you're very familiar with John Stott. Uh, yes, so, you know some some have called him the uh, the Protestant Pope, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. but one one of his thoughts uh, that I read is that uh, apologetics and evangelism are two sides of the same coin. Uh, would you help yes. us unpack what he meant by that? Yeah, well, John Stott was another person who influenced me very strongly, and I had the pleasure of getting to know him not well, but on and off over the last sort of 12 years of his life, um, which was a real pleasure. And I think what John Stott said, he, very interestingly, what he was trying to say there about the coin was we sometimes think of maybe apologetics and evangelism as two opposing forces. And what he was trying to say is, look, it's very hard to say what the gospel is without explaining why. And similarly, it's very hard to give the why, the apologetic side, without without declaring the what. So these two things actually go together. And so you can't separate your apologetics from your evangelism. If you're, going to, if you're giving the reason for the hope that you have, you're going to be engaged in the process of evangelism. If you're engaged in the process of evangelism, you're going to be trying to answer these why questions. Why does this matter? Why is it important? What difference does it make? Is it true? And so on. So he could see the integration. And quite interestingly, uh, he gave an interview at one point where the interviewer asked him the question, if you could do your life over differently, is there anything you would change? And part of his answer was, yes, I'll do more apologetics. Uh, in other words, um, he started his ministry in a culture that was, well, to some extent was challenging the truth of the Christian faith. That's absolutely correct. But also was saying, what does this mean? We have, it's never been clearly articulated. We've gone to church 
but it doesn't seem to make any difference. And he was brilliant at giving that articulation, and he was also capable of explaining it was true. But as our culture moved away from that Christian heritage, if you like, fewer people were saying, look, I've heard this all before, and I was, you know, um, confirmed at the age of 13 or 14, um, but what does it really mean? There were fewer of those kinds of people, and there were more who were saying, but why should I listen to you in the first place? And maybe there's no such thing as meaning. And if there is no such thing as meaning, there's no point in having this conversation at all. And so even before you could get into it, you had to rescue the idea of, yes, we can have a meaningful conversation. And uh, so he, but that's very much what he, he brought there. And I think his book, The Cross of Christ, um, John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, is one of the few books I've read more than four or five times. Uh, it's a real masterpiece. I think it should be read every couple of, a couple of years. Um... But every time I read it, I learn something new, and I think, "Wow, I didn't see that the first, <laughs> the last time I read it." Yeah. So it's I've, I've now marked up almost the entire book. <laughs> it's hard to it's it's hard to not mark it up. I understand. Well, when when we read a, uh, verses like First Peter three fifteen and sixteen, we're we're called to be able to give and, and to actually give an account of the hope that is within us. Now, do you do you think that's just for a select group of accomplished apologists, maybe like yourself, or is that is that something that might extend a little further in the body of Christ? Yeah, no, I think that's a very good question. I mean, the letter of First Peter, um, from where that command comes, be prepared to give everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. That thing about being prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope. That verse, that command, hey, do apologetics, give these answers, is in the book of First Peter, as you said. But the book of First Peter is addressed to the church. So the book of First Peter isn't like the epistle to Timothy, which was addressed to an individual, nor you know to a particular particular geographical region like Ephesians. You know, uh, the the letter of First Peter is one of the general epistles. It's written to every believer everywhere, uh, and there is this general uh, command, therefore, that comes out and says, hey you must be prepared you know, to speak up when the opportunity is there. Uh, and that, of course, implies that we actually know what we're going to be able to say. And, and I think for a lot of people, what we're Christians, what they struggle with is they think, gosh, if someone were to ask me a question, I'm not sure I'll feel comfortable answering it. Um, so we, we need to recover, I think, that general biblical mandate to for every believer to be able to meaningfully give an answer for the reason for the hope that they have, um, and it should be part and parcel of you know of our of our regular discipleship. This this concern about being asked a question that you can't answer, um, I, I wonder if 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 you might address. Let's say that I, I I'm asked a question that I can't answer, and I'm and I'm building a relationship with someone. How how comfortable can I be in saying, look, let's study that. Let's get back together in a week or two, and, and I'll do my homework on that, and you do some homework, and let's see what we find together. That's, ab- <laughs> that's absolutely the right response to that question. If we don't know, uh, we need to say, you know what, I, I don't know. Let me just think about that and get back. Um, we often, as Christians, come across as, I think, overly defensive. Um, by that, we're trying to defend everything and everyone, Um and we feel that to admit any form of weakness or you know, we, we, that we don't understand something would be detrimental. Whereas I think for the average listener, if our response is, gosh, I'm not sure about that, or can you let me find out, or can you help me understand your question better, creates an honesty in the conversation where people say, oh, so you know, you're not just blindly saying what you think you ought to say, 
You're actually listening to what I'm saying and you're thinking about it too. So when we don't know, it's a wonderful opportunity, A, for us to find out and B, to, to walk that journey together with the other person if, if they are interested in us coming back. And, and I think saying what you've said is a, is a very good idea. Um, you know, uh, and even saying, you know what, I think I heard something about that recently that I found very helpful. Uh, would you like me to give it to you or send it to you and maybe we can talk about it afterwards can also be very helpful because at least you have something then you can talk around. Um, you know, some, you know, various points were made and you can see where they feel it made sense and where they just weren't tracking it at all. And that can really help take things forward. Sure. Um, Francis Schaeffer wrote that the greatest problem I have today as I look at us as the Christian church is that we don't even know what the questions are, let alone what the answers are. So so how how do we... Well, I mean, we may sincerely want to relate to our neighbor, to yeah. our friend at work, to our old friend from college days. But how do we how do we listen for the real questions, which which reveal the cry of that person's heart? You know, the depth of what's really uh, the core issues of their concern. Yes, and I and I think listening to those cries of the heart is something that uh, I know uh, Dr. Zacharias very much helped me understand the importance of myself and my own my, in, in what I'm now doing with the organization as well. Uh, and I think there are two ways of doing it, um, at least, uh, more, actually. But um, there is a very direct way, um, which can be, um, you know, speaking with a neighbor or a friend or a family member and even just saying, you know, I'm trying to just think through, um, you know, various aspects of you know, my own Christian faith. You probably know I'm a Christian. I'd be really interested to hear from you. If you could ask seven or eight questions of God, the ones that you feel affect you the most, what would they be? And listen to what they have to say. Um, it's quite interesting if you ever do that, what the outcome is, um, because you, you find out what people are thinking. The other way actually is, is through the arts. Um, if you listen to any contemporary music, you read any contemporary novels, the insight that they often carry or have really helps us take the temperature of where people are. I mean, I, I'm just finishing off reading um, uh, Franzen's new novel. He's an American novelist called Purity. And, you know, there's a fascinating uh, line in there that really got me thinking where this girl meets this boy um, right near the beginning of the novel, and she's thinking... You know, what kind of relationship I'm going to have with this guy? Will I sleep with him or not? But the way the question is put in her mind by the author is she thought to herself, um, dare I risk the intimacy of friendship or shall I simply retreat into the safety of casual sex? Now, you read a line like that and you think, you know what? There are so many young people I know who identify with that. Um, uh, they actually find just, you know, the idea of sleeping around to be less threatening um, than the idea of having a friendship where you might have to open yourself up and become vulnerable. Um, and in one sense, the novel is an entire, at one level, it's an entire commentary on that one commentary. How do you find intimacy? How do you build relationship? Is it through the physical? And, um, you know, I, I, was, I was coming, I'm coming towards the end of it. I was reading the, the last part last night, and I just wrote in the margin we're confusing the idea of being physically intimate with someone with having relational intimacy with them. And those are two different things. Uh, and people are assuming that by being physically intimate, they will have this relational intimacy, but that's not true. Um, and that's why it's possible to be married and, you know, sleeping with someone, with someone as much as you want to and still feel empty inside. Um, we're looking for something which is more than that. And so I think 
I think very often in the music, in those kinds of books and the novels, we we often see, I feel like, that cry of the heart given in a more unguarded form. Uh, and so I think listening to that carefully, thinking what's going on here, can really often help us give us some insight into the way that some people are thinking. Yeah, what, what comes to mind was Chesterton's uh, a quote from Chesterton, that when a, when a man goes to, to a house of prostitution, he's looking for God. And, mm. and, and that sounds so awkward, so backward. But but what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is that we're all seeking intimacy. And so mm. the physical intimacy doesn't satisfy the deepest longings of our heart, does it? No, and I think those questions go very often. I was speaking at a carol service here in Oxford in December, and one of the questions I raised there was that we're struggling right now with trying to understand the interplay between light and darkness. There's a part of us in which we think, human beings, you know, we see this light, this potential, this hope. Uh, and at the same time, we see such terrible darkness and pain and a willingness to take life and cause mayhem. And we're trying to make sense of a world in which isn't totally dark and isn't totally light. And we're trying to think, how do we understand the interplay between that? And it was very interesting to see people just lean forward in their seats. And afterwards, there was a film crew actually interviewing people afterwards, many, most of whom were non-Christian who were there, and they were saying, wow, you know what, I, I think about this a lot. And, of course, you know, here in Europe with what happened in Paris recently and also events which happened in the States, we, we asked that question. So I think there are questions which are very much on people's hearts and minds where we're just trying to understand the world around us. And I think the Christian gospel, and I think coming back to John Stott, I think this is something which he understood very well. The Christian gospel helps us make sense of that. We, we were created in a world, you know, which was perfect, but it is fallen and it is broken. Um, which is why we see these this sort of these hints towards nobility, and we also see darkness, and that these two worlds collide. Um, and what we need isn't to block one out and just focus on the other. Uh, what we need is something that can actually rescue us out of this mess. Um, and again, you're back at the cross. So I, I think this is, if you like, what all believers need to do in terms of their apologetics is, as you said, we're right at the beginning of the program. We need to listen very carefully. Let me understand where you're coming from. Let me try and help you um, see how Christ actually does make make sense of this and actually change um, and bring hope into this situation that may otherwise seem impossible to deal with. Sure. That's the accounting for our hope, but making it uh, accessible and of interest to the places that you learn where the other person needs hope. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, in in one of your talks, you you've talked about cynicism and fear holding us back. Yeah. Would you would you unpack those for us? Because I I, I just I, I sense so much there about those those two things that that are like binders are holding us and not allowing us to become fully capable or fully willing to step out and share our faith. Yeah, well, I think, uh, thanks for the question. <laughs> it's a great question. I think the thing about cynicism is um, in the Western world, we're in danger of becoming cynical about the efficacy of the gospel. By that, I mean, we're not sure if it really makes a difference anymore. Does it really change hearts and lives? Does it really bring about a transformation? And we need to uh, recover that conviction that actually that it does and it can. Um, but if we're cynical about that, then we're not going to even try, because what's the point of, of doing something if it's guaranteed never to make a connection, never to make any difference? We may as well go and do something else. 
So I think that that cynicism that we sometimes feel, and we can even see it sometimes in our attitude to church, where we're thinking, well, maybe this isn't something I really want to be part of or connect with, even as a Christian. We're inadvertently often becoming cynical in many ways. And we need to be, I think, challenged by that. And I think this is where Christians in the persecuted world have a lot to teach us, where they're facing a lot of opposition, their lives are being taken away from them. And although we face opposition in the West, our lives aren't being taken away from us. And we need their bravery and the breakthrough which they see, I think, is an inspiring contemporary message to us to realize that actually this really is worth giving your all for and it really can make a very deep difference. The fear side, I think, is 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 there are two sides to that. We've already touched on on one of them a little bit. One is being asked something which I just simply don't know. Uh, but actually, that kind of fear can be dealt with quite easily by saying, look, I don't know, let me find out. There's a second type of fear, I think, that we have where we think God wants us to be active in sharing our faith in order to make sure we don't have any friends. And I think that's a misunderstanding of the, the nature and the process of evangelism. Um, we, I think what happens is, although we don't articulate it this, this strongly, that when people ask us why we are Christians, we revert back into saying how we became a Christian. We tell them what. Um, but there's a big difference between what and why. Uh, how I became a Christian is a story um, uh, which is very powerful and very effective. But the question why, yes, but, but what are the reasons why behind it? That's at the point where we think, oh, gosh, I don't know what to say. Why am I a Christian? Um, and But that can be also overcome by education and understanding. So I think um, the, the overcoming that sense of fear of not knowing or knowing that the question is coming but feeling I don't know what to say, we, we can work through. There is a, a last type of fear, which is, I think, fear of of losing our, as I say, of losing those relationships with other people. And I think what's happening there, we have to be very careful. Sadly, some people in the Christian faith have turned rudeness into a spiritual gift. And so um, the more people that they may deliberately upset, the more faithful they think they're being. Well, it's true that there may well be an offense which comes with the gospel, but we're certainly not told to seek it out. What we're told to do is the opposite. We're told to come at this as peaceably um, as we possibly can, knowing that for some people uh, they will take offense at this. It's very interesting, that passage in 1 Peter 3. You know, it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. We've already talked a bit about that. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. But then the next verse goes on to say, um, uh, keeping a clear conscience so that they may be ashamed of their slander. Well, what it's saying is, is if people accuse Christians or the Christian church of doing something which is wrong, they should feel ashamed. It doesn't say they will feel ashamed. But it says that they should do. They should be able to reflect back on it and think, you know what, that's not true. I'm making that up. Um, the problem comes if we have given the world good grounds to believe they shouldn't feel ashamed, that it's not slanderous, it's actually true. Uh, and that's when, as a church, we need to confess and say sorry. Um, and at the same time, though, maintain the boldness to say, but look, this truth remains, and to present it as well as we can. And so I think we need this healthy sense of of you know what it means to have a, a fear, if you like, and a respect, proper respect of God, uh, and what it means to be afraid of the world. And we're told we definitely shouldn't be afraid, you know, of the world. But we need to make sure the way we conduct ourselves means that when we stand before God, um, 
he says, no, you did that. You didn't simply say the right thing. You also did it in the right way. And that's something I know that Francis Schaeffer was very, very big with. And Oz Guinness, who now also works with our ministry as well, with RZIM, you know, uh, he often repeats what Schaefer said there about, you know, God is interested in both ends and means. Uh, and, and that's the message I think we have to get across very strongly. Uh, we need to be bold. We need to be clear. But we need to think through how we're saying it as well, um, that one doesn't disqualify the other. Yes. Yeah, so one other aspect I want to ask you about. We're getting we're getting near the end of our time, but I'd, I'd like for you to address uh, the double mindedness that James talks about and, and how the lordship of Christ in our life can help us to overcome double mindedness and lead us in our evangelistic outreach. Yeah. Well, that phrase double mindedness in James is a fascinating word in the Greeks. James is actually inventing a new word. Um, it doesn't mean to be two faced. It doesn't mean that you try to be one thing to one person and you're something else to someone else. It means to be caught in two opinions. It means you don't know what to believe yourself. And as a result, you're carried by the wave of current opinion. And when it blows one way, you go with it. And when it changes direction, you go with it. And what James is saying is such a person is unstable in everything that they do, uh, spiritually unstable. And what he goes on to say is that the reason why such a person who who is caught in two opinions doesn't know what to believe or why um, that uh, that there's a spiritual there's a lack of spiritual fruit in their life not because they don't know how to live but because they don't know how to think so the the what we need to understand therefore is that when we talk about Christ being Lord of our minds. What we're really talking about is that not just that we have a feeling in our heart about God and we feel positive towards him, but a, a, a knowledge, a certainty that, hey, this is true and this is real and I can rely on him and I can rely on this. And that's where my anchor is. That's what gives me stability. Uh, and it affects, it's going to affect how I pray. It's going to affect how I live. It's going to affect how I speak. And that double mindedness that then is gone. And I, and I think we what sometimes happens in the christian faith is when we talk about being gentle with people we assume that means not to have any kind of conviction um, and what we need to recover is a way in which we can understand no you can have conviction and you can have compassion conviction and compassion can go together so we can be very clear in what we think and christ must be lord of our heart and our mind um, so we're not double-minded not unstable there and at the same time know that that doesn't affect our ability to be compassionate loving understanding you know, uh, to the world which is around us. Um, when we can marry those two together, it's very, very, very powerful. Uh, I love listening to the older members of our of our team, John Lennox, Os Guinness, Dr. Ravi Zacharias, all of those guys, because very often when they're speaking, you feel like you want to go and give them a hug. Uh, it's, not, it's not just that what they're saying, they're saying it well, but they often say it with such a gentleness of character and spirit. Uh, it's very, very attractive, um, and it's very uh, endearing. It helps to show the the winsomeness of Jesus Christ and the depth of our of our faith. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Michael, uh, it, it's really been a, a great pleasure to have you with us today. Uh, I thank you for your time. Uh, we invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to hear podcasts of previous programs and audio and video from past conferences on faith and culture matters such as science, art, and ethics. Mm-hmm.